everyone and welcome to episode 7 of Hints for Healing, a podcast where we discuss multidisciplinary work that contributes to the healing of children and young people with refugee experience. I want to acknowledge that I'm recording on the land of the Terramaragal people and I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, to their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging, And I acknowledge the injustice that they've experienced and continue to experience, and I recognise their resilience in the face of this. I'd like to extend a special welcome to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. I'm Nicole Lur, a School Liaison Officer on the School Liaison Team at Start, which is the New South Wales-based service for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. We are very blessed here on the School Liaison team to have colleagues with a very diverse set of professional backgrounds and experiences, which adds so many nuanced perspectives and custom approaches to the work that we're able to do with schools and with learners with refugee experience. And one such esteemed colleague is School Liaison Officer Rochelle Coe, who I'm very pleased to say was my guest for this seventh episode on the Hints for Healing podcast. My guest Rochelle Coe is a school liaison officer at Starts, to which she brings her expertise as an occupational therapist. She has undergraduate and master's degrees in occupational therapy and has experience working in the areas of school-based occupational therapy, paediatrics and childhood disability in Australia, the UK and Singapore. Throughout her career, Rochelle has held varied roles as a clinician, an educator, consultant, researcher and project officer. She's involved in OT Australia as a representative on the Witness Intermediary Registration Panel and as a co-facilitator of the Resettlement Special Interest Group within OT Australia. Rochelle has a particular interest in the use of movement and play opportunities as interventions for students who have experienced trauma. Rochelle, welcome to the Hints for Healing podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me along, Nicole. So good to have you on the show. So I've already mentioned occupational therapy a few times um, in my introduction, but I'm conscious that some of our listeners might appreciate a recap from you on what occupational therapy is. So occupational therapy um, is a a particular um, health profession that focuses on what people need or want to do within, within their lives. Um, It stems from the idea that the word occupation doesn't mean just what we do for work, but rather how we occupy our time. So I'm particularly interested in what roles people have in their lives and how, what are the things that they need or want to do to be able to fulfill those, um, those aspects. So in, in, and occupational therapists work across um, most health, um, most sectors. Um, So if we're working in a medical field, we might be looking at a physical injury um, or disability that might be impacting on somebody's ability to say, get dressed or to be able to go to work. Um, Or that we might actually in a a more mental health capacity, look at how, how, what are the things that are um, preventing someone from being able to do the, um, to do the things they need or want to do. Oh, so it's actually really broad. So it might have to do with supporting people in their roles that they have in their family and home life, um, at school or at work or yeah, in any area of life. Mm, mm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's um it is very it can be very um very broad. Yeah. And so how can occupational therapy be part of someone's recovery from refugee related trauma? Well, um working in the school liaison team, I'm very aware that children have difficulty um when they have trauma um from their trauma in terms of engaging and participating in the things they need to do at school as as well as some of the things they want to do. So they may have difficulty concentrating in the classroom or um, being able to to sit still Mm. um, or that they may be so hypervigilant of their surroundings that they can't take in the information they want. But we also might see it in um, things that children want to do at school. So school's not just about learning. It's a social environment in which we engage with others in a community. And so if if we're having difficulties in um, engaging in the school playground in a, in a way that allows play and allows us to build friendships, that can also be problematic for students. And so... Um, that's kind of, uh, I guess, one of the focuses that um, if I'm if I'm putting on my OT goggles or my OT lens, that's how I might be thinking about it. Okay. And what is different about putting on the, the OT lens from, say, working on a purely psychological level with recovery from trauma? Um, so... I mean, as a as a, um, a health professional working at Starts, we do use a biopsychosocial model. Um, I guess what we're um, a way to simply think about how an occupational therapist might um, think about what people do is that we might start by thinking about what is it the thing that that person wants to do. So that occupation, if you like, and we might we would analyse that occupation and identify where if there were parts of that they couldn't do or that they were not performing at the level they needed to be to be able to do that. We might also look at the actual skills of the young person. So what are their, their um, physical skills? What are their cognitive skills? What are their um, psychosocial skills? Um, and what do they bring um, um, to it? What are their strengths that might innate that if we do something or organise something a bit differently might enable them to to be able Mm. to carry out that occupation. And then finally, and a a very, I would say, quite a large part of what I do as a school liaison officer is around the environment. So what Mm. is it about the the, um, physical, uh, psychological, social, cultural environment, institutional environment that um, can be a um, facilitator of a child's participation in the things they need to do or it may well be a barrier. And so mm-hmm. thinking about how do we actually um, consider all those elements to enable someone to be able to do the things they need to do. Mm. So you work if you're working with a client um, therapeutically, um, are you working with the teacher as well of that school-age student? Yeah. Yeah, so we might be talking about what is it that um, that child might need in the classroom to help them um, participate. Uh, I always sort of like to explain sensory processing um, back to the, to an individual. So we use 
strategies. We're not always aware of them. Maybe we are um, throughout our day to help keep ourselves regulated. So we might drink hot drinks, cold drinks. We might want need to eat something that's crunchy. We might need to have a walk before we go, be, before we feel really awake in the morning. But we do embedded into the things we do every day might be things that um, help us to to stay calm or to, to be awake. Um, so one of my strategies, for example, is when I'm in a meeting, if I'm not talking, I'm often writing things down or I'm doodling. And that's a strategy that I use to actually um, stay regulated. And sometimes people might think, oh, she's not listening because she's not looking at the person. But actually, I'm probably more, I'm listening very intently because um, I'm engaged in something and I'm listening while that's happening. So, um, and it can look, we're all sensory beings. We all have our own different um, levels of how much stimulation we like. And maybe when we're really stressed, we can't tolerate as much as when we're feeling really calm. Um, some people like, um, for example, some people really like um, going on uh, fairground rides or, um, um, you know, going to Luna Park and taking the, the scariest spinning around thing they possibly can. Well, whereas for me, that sounds like night, a nightmare um, because my, my, the way my sensory um, aspects of um, my body are that that becomes too overstimulating for me and I want to throw up. Um, so what what works for one person won't always work for another person. Yeah. So can an individual client um, come to learn through therapy with you um, what sort of things help them get more aroused, like more um, able to engage with their environment, more sharp um, and then learn if they need to settle down, what sort of sensory input might help them with that? Um, it, it depends on a number of factors. And one is their age mm. and whether they have an, um, an understanding of recognising the signals within their own bodies. Um, and sometimes, you know, rather than going, I'm going to teach the child how to do this, um, I mean, children are reliant on adults for self-regulation in general, um, you know, like their teacher or their parent. Um, so, you know, to sort of then suddenly go, I think you should be self-regulating or you should be able to know what will calm you down and what will do this um, may not all, always work initially and that they may need to go through some stages of having someone help them to mm. co-regulate mm. um, rather and helping. Um, and this is where... Um, I guess the environmental aspects become really important. So, you know, with with one school, I was doing some consult working. We talked about the environment, um, and the teacher was saying, whenever I walk into this room, they were going to run a group for children who were refugees, um, in the, um, who who had refugee experience, and they were going to. And we walked into this room, and she said. Is this room okay? Is it enough room for what you need for what the counsellor need to do? I wasn't actually running the group; I was just um, facilitating that process. And she said, "Whenever I come in this room, I get really stressed." And I said, "Oh, that's interesting. What was it about the room that do you think that's making you feel stressed?" And she said, "Everywhere I look, there is a word." Mm. 
there's were it's a it's a literacy room that they used to do literacy in, but mm-hmm. also the EALD um, withdrawal sessions. Yeah. And so we actually, and like there were, I mean, I was overwhelmed. She, yeah. I could see she was overwhelmed. There were words in like hanging down from the ceiling. There were words on the walls. Mm. There was no um, work of the students on the walls. So it was like you were being bombarded by words. And we reflected on what that might feel like when you're just starting to learn words in another language mm. and how that might. And, you know, it was interesting because it wasn't her room. So she didn't. And one of the things we talked about was what can we do about, like realistically, what can we do about this when it's not your room? Yeah. Um, and one of them was talking about ways to talk to the other teacher about what that experience, that sensory element to the room might be like for someone who might not be feeling very calm, might be feeling mm-hmm. quite anxious about the fact that they're learning words yeah. and um, and might be feeling anxious that they're joining a group with a teacher and a counsellor. Yeah, um, I think I can exactly picture the sort of room you're describing. Yeah. I've seen them as well. And, and they can look, they're really stimulating and colourful and, um, and, you know, beautiful in many ways too. But there's mm-hmm. no break. There's no break for the eyes. There's no blank wall or, or soothingly coloured wall to have a rest. Um, and if we were, you, need right you know, then. if we were using some, say, for instance, some grounding techniques, can you five, fa- find five things in the room you can see and the very thing, the only thing they can see Mm. is the thing that's going to probably stress them out. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, we did some training with teachers. Um, I did some training with some teachers in one year group last year, just talking through how do we actually think about the environment as a tool for helping. Um, we, we, you know, as school liaison officers, we often talk about safety and about relationship. But I think that other part of, you know, that, um, welcoming safety sort of stuff is how can we help someone feel a bit calmer in the environment they're in or perhaps how can we help someone wake up if they're they're feeling quite down and and um, hypo aroused um, mm. so um, I think there are elements that I'm not saying it's the thing that's going to fix everything I think it's a, a multi-pronged and definitely Um, you know, whole school approach to supporting uh, young people with refugee experiences. But, you know, I think it's a a small chunk of the puzzle, if you like. Yeah. Are there there any principles in in how you set up a classroom that can keep in mind that, you know, you've often got maybe even 25 to 30 Mm. different individuals with nervous systems that work in different ways? And is it possible to be sensitive to the needs of all the individuals in that room? Um, Look, I think one of the things that I always find with teachers is if teachers have awareness and there's some fantastic teachers out there who really do have an awareness of responding to the individual students in their class, even though they might have 25 or 30. Um, And that's, I think, part of it is them understanding the nuances of some of the things that their students respond to or like. Um, Things, a lot of classrooms that you, um, I'm sure you've seen it too, Nicole, a lot of classrooms now have, rather than everybody has to sit 
in the same sort of seat, in the same direction, that there might be different offerings of um, for what they call flexible seating or that, you know, that you have throughout the day, you know, the classroom I walked into this morning, they were doing their maths on the floor. They had the, um, the little um, bricks, they had a game and there was a dice and they had math sums and they had um, manipulatives. It was a year two class. Um, but, you know, like the, the teacher wasn't expecting everybody to sit still on the, you know, on the, at their desks, yeah. that there was movement incorporated into that, um, into what they needed to do and that they could sit on the floor and they didn't, you know, they weren't told you have to sit in a certain way or whatever. So I think one of the things is having flexibility, um, often having a, a space in the classroom that maybe if the classroom is very loud and lots of words or lots of really bright colours or sounds or whatever, that you do have a space where, and I know you've, uh, having worked with you for a while, Nicole, you often talk about the, the calm space or somewhere where, you know, if somebody needed to go and listen to some really calm music, you know, that slower beat um, with some headphones on or, you know, those cushions in the corner or some, I've seen some schools have little tents or some space mm. where if you're not having a good time and you need to calm down that you have an option. Yeah. Um, and I saw a very beautiful example from a teacher from a PBL um, school that incorporated how do I kind of fit in with the, you know, the PBL sort of perspectives. Can you just explain PBL? Um, now I'm going, what's that stand for again? Um, positive behaviour for learning. Sorry, I had other acronyms in my head then. <laughs> um, positive behaviour for learning is um, a way of setting up expectations for behaviour in school and it's the mm -hmm. explicit teaching of those behaviours. Mm -hmm. um, so those behaviours might be, you know, we expect safe, responsible people um, mm. and that, you know, for, and that there is a process if you don't follow um, those behavioural expectations mm -hmm. and you know for some of our students with refugee experience they might have difficulty with PBL not because they're trying to be to break the rules but rather their responses to what's happening in their environment um, they're not in control of because um, they've become hyper hyper aroused or because they they are hypo aroused they're not aware of what's happening around them mm -hmm. and so um, this particular teacher at a school that has a high percentage of um, students with refugee experience actually did a whole piece of work with her class, like a couple of weeks worth at the beginning of the year. And she would actually help the class work out what sort of behaviours should we be seeing in the classroom and what should we do when we feel mad, bad or sad. And so the mad, bad or sad had you know, there was a calm space. Mm -hmm. The students identifying people they could go to when they didn't feel right. Um, what was allowed in terms of a movement. So if a student was not coping and was getting angry in the classroom, well, where could they go to walk off that anger and still be safe? Mm. Um, she had a variety. They did a whole thing on squishies and, and tactile um, things and, 
you know, and she modelled her own behaviour, you know, her own behaviours in the classroom. So, you know, oh, I'm feeling really stressed today. I think I might get that stress ball and I might, right, I'm going to take some deep breaths. She taught, they taught them, yeah. you know, some breathing techniques. So she taught some of those social emotional things alongside some of the sensory supports that might help some of those students. Um, and there are particular programs um, that really concentrate on the sensory mm -hmm. supports or on helping students to um, understand their own bodies in relation to um, how they might be feeling or how they might be responding. Um, but she had like um, quite integrated a lot of that into a piece of work that the whole class was engaged in. So for some students, it is a whole of class thing. And for others, they may require some sort of assessment or, um, mm. you know, sort of, and that's, you know, some kids who don't have trauma may also have issues with sensory processing. So it's not yeah. just someone who has trauma. Mm. Oh, that's, that's such an, a good example that wraps up. Yeah, so so many elements that help um, make make spaces friendlier on a more sensory level. So you you know, I heard just in that example there, there's there's the compassion there of the teacher. There's all those opportunities for human connection and breaks from human connection if that's what the student yeah. needs. There's lots of flexibility. There's options, and then the modelling as well from from a, a trusted adult. So. Yeah. yeah, thanks. That's a great example. So you've done so many things um, across your, your career as an occupational therapist and um, not only in Australia, as I said in the introduction. So um, what was it that motivated you to start working with students with refugee experience? Um, I was working um, at a university on the occupational therapy program and I've always been interested in how people participate in their environments and you know, I think, and you see this in disability sort of arena, there was always this let's fix the prop person yeah. when actually we need to fix or look at what environment supports people's participation. What's the engagement? How do we help people engage more? And so I'd come from that background and um, I, in, within the occupational therapy field, um, so occupational therapy is the therapy we do. Um, we also have a branch, called, uh, you know, like a, I guess, more a theoretical um, focus in occupational science, which is the science of studying what people do and how they do it and analysing it in, in quite a lot of detail. And so I'd always been connected with my occupational science colleagues and I, um, and a lot of, there was some work being done in the field by scholars around, well, what happens to people when they cannot do what it is they need or want to do? So in, um, in circumstances of deprivation, what happens? And so, you know, sort of one of our occupational science colleagues had done some work, um, some research on um, refugees from Kosovo and um, and looking in much more detail around the experience and other colleagues have looked at people who are in detention and what what does that experience of 
um, because of persecution, of missing out of that connection with others, that belonging to a community, not being able to engage in the things you need to do. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in terms of children later on, but mm. I, I guess I want to stay on this track for a moment. And so um, well, I had the opportunity to change our curriculum and I felt that it was time to, and I was you know, engaged with other occupational therapy academics at the time around um, developing a curriculum called occupational justice. So it was a, a unit within our, um, and occupational justice looks at um, provide, looking at opportunities or how, what do we do when people have um, not had access to the things or have other things outside of their control that are impacting on their ability to um, do the things they need or want to do. And so um, I developed um, that particular unit um, and um, it, ha it taught not just about um, people with refugee experience, but got students to reflect a lot um, on their own perceptions and biases and stereotypes and um, prejudices and um, privileges, so that we were actually examining some of the some of the the difficulties that might be with um, people who are not experiencing um, occupational justice, and so people with disability, um, people who might end up in nursing homes when they're young, um, homelessness, uh, refugees. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think who else. We, but we explored a whole um, different, lots of different areas. And students, um, you know, did some amazing work in thinking about um, what, how, um, what happens when people don't have access to opportunities. And um, during this time, I'd worked with a student over a period of years in that he'd been in my class and he'd come to see me because he was nearly failing the class, which is, you know, students who are nearly failing do come and see you. Mm -hmm. And um, he told me that he had learnt English when he was 16 um, and that he had come from Kosovo. And he told me his, his story. He told me not all of his story, but a little bit of his story in terms of he thought he was coming to somewhere that looked like home and away and he ended up in Liverpool. Yeah. Um, so, he, uh, you know, he talked about that um, with me. And so when, he, when we got, um, when, when I was teaching in this unit, um, he took the, because they had to do an assignment, and he took one on refugees and he did it. He did a really good, good job. And, and I was very aware then about how important and how very challenging getting into university was for him. And um, also, like, what had been really challenging along the way in terms of supporting, you know, what, and he didn't get a lot of support. And it made me realise just how important education was mm. and why I f and sort of... Um, why I kind of, when I saw the opportunity to come to Starts, I felt like that was something that I could really contribute to in a different way. Um, 
and, you know, look at how do we, you know, how do we build capacity and help support people, into, um, teachers, schools, young people, parents, in enabling people to engage in the education process. Yeah, so you've got quite a unique insight having worked as an academic for so long that you've seen, you know, some of the things that could have been addressed earlier for, you know, students mm. that that did have an opportunity to get some schooling in Australia that might have um, helped them out um, with their tertiary education if mm. they chose to go down that path. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm conscious that you do some play-based groups as well, or you have done in the past um, in schools. So I was wondering if you could explain what a play-based group is and um, perhaps what the goals of these groups are. Sure. Um, can I take it a step back before I tell you that as to why why I think play-based, play-based work and that might um, happen in more than one way um, and play-based groups is one, one of those ways. Um, when play is really, it's, if we're talking in occupational therapy speak, it's the occupation of childhood. It's the thing that all children do, regardless of what culture they're from. Um, they might play differently or use different materials, but they every child plays. And what we sometimes see in children from refugee backgrounds is that they actually have had reduced opportunities to play. And given that play is where children learn their physical skills, their social-emotional skills, um, their cognitive skills, it then doesn't become so hard to realise why some of these children might be having troubles at school because they have, you know, in effect, missed out on those opportunities. So as an example... The kids that we've had in our, um, in I've I've run two sets of play-based groups in the last couple of years, and um, they often are identified by teachers as having as being children who um, don't play well with others, often get into conflict, might not know, might follow the teacher around the the playground because they don't know what to do when they meet another child. Um, they, um, yeah, they, and I guess the other part about it is is thinking about um, play, when a child plays, when they're playful, they're not fearful. Mm. So we're actually helping to rewire what's happened to them. We're actually helping them to engage in something that will change their perspective, their, the way that um, their perspective um, from a teacher perspective, play, um, early play experiences um, impact on literacy. Play is where we learn how to tell a story. You know, you be the mum, I'll be the dad, and together we're going to do blah, blah, blah. In that, and then there's the story that they act out that story in their minds about what's going to happen. If you haven't been exposed or had time to do that, then your ability to, that's not to say you won't get literacy, you will, but your ability to kind of just understand storying and narrative becomes much more challenging. So these children that we identified or the schools identified often had difficulty 
in the playground. The last um, group that I had also had, um, some of them had sensory sort of needs. Um, and what we, so what it entails is a group of children. Um, this time um, I've done it with counsellors, I've done it with play therapists and teachers. Um, we meet in the same time at the same place each week for a period of time, um, preferably in a space where we can make mess. Um, and I say that um, affectionately rather than, oh, my God, <laughs> they made a mess. Um, so somewhere that has a, a wet area and lots of primary schools particularly have wet areas um, so that it's somewhere that we can clean up afterwards if we need to. Yeah. Um, it would have the room would have a variety of uh, materials, so um, pretend play materials like doctor's sets, um, play food, cash registers, um, uh, dress up materials, a tent or a, a calm space, musical instruments, um, paint, craft th crafting things. Um, and then something um, something that might be more sensory, like um, before COVID, we would use sand, but we can't use, that's one thing that we haven't been able to use at the moment. Um, but things like um, shaving foam, um, Play-Doh, clay, so things that have a textural element to it. Mm. Um, we'd have cardboard boxes or other craft materials, paper, um, of course. Each week, the room's set up in exactly the same way. So the same toys are in the same places. And the, the children are given three rules. You can be, um, the rules are that you have to be safe to yourselves. You have to be safe to the other people in the room. And you have to be safe to the room and the toys within it. And we'll tell you if you're not safe. So that rather than what happens sometimes in schools, these are my expectations and there's 10, 10 rules that they have to remember. It's all about providing the safety. Um, and so the adults in the room, so regardless of who that, their role is not to teach children how to play for these children. And I'm not saying that some children do need to be taught how to play. Mm -hmm need facilitation of that for for the kids that we've been working with you don't need to teach them you just need to give them the opportunity um, the first group that I ever ran with a play therapist and a teacher for six weeks nine out of the ten children were at the sink playing messy play with the shaving foam and we had some um, colored waters and they would spend the entire time and they pretty much played in solo. So they didn't, they, um, they didn't, they played next to other children, but they didn't actually play with each other. They'd go, come on, come over to the sink. And then the rest of the time that they're at the sink, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't engage with each other. And then an interesting thing happened at the end of week six, they all moved away from the sink and they went and, you know, two of them went and made paper aeroplanes together and some of them started playing dress-ups that had a story mm -hmm. and, you know, heroes that saved people from the bad people. Um, so there was this real shift in the themes and the ways in which they um, might have played. With the other group that I ran, it was a very different group, but we did see um, a shift from that messy play to um, some more organised play. Um, 
and that group was a much more physical group. They were probably um, had a were higher needs type group, um, and um, we actually um, for that group we actually made it a much smaller group so that we could give them some um, more attention. Um, can I so just that, ask what that shift can be indicative of, that shift from more messy parallel play to that more cooperative organised play? Well, I think it's a shift in their developmental, what, you know, what we saw was that they went back to a stage that they needed to be in mm. and, that, um, and that once they had filled that need, it wasn't such a big need. Yeah. Um, I think... And I think that we were able to provide, like part of the way the group is, is that I think it provided that need in a, in a non-judgmental way, whereas perhaps, you know, there might be a, oh, don't do that, you're too old for that, or you're making too much mess. Yeah. And so it's okay if, you, you know, you can do what you like as long as you're safe um, sort of thing. I think... Um, and, you know, I see it as a shift in their um, moving towards more developmentally um, appropriate play. What's interesting about this other, these other groups that we did, um, I did this with a psychologist and myself, and um, these children were a lot more dysregulated. Um, we worked with them in a smaller group. Um, but what's interesting, I was at the school, so those children we saw last year, um, I was at their school and they are no longer being written up in the um, in playground incidents book. Mm. So something clicked for them that they're now engaging play in a more meaningful way at recess and lunch. So they're not getting into trouble anymore, yeah. which I think that's huge. And the school said that's really huge um, shift for us because then we know they know that the children are happier and that they have – um, you know, they've had the opportunity to play with other ki- with some kids um, in a way with adults who are, you know, um, we're not teaching them how to do it. What and I guess the the role of the adult is very important. So it's not like um, we use um, two particular techniques: reflective responding and um, limits um, limit setting. So. In reflective responding, so if a child says they've got their um, painting, their painting, so rather than making any judgments on the painting, we might say something like, um, "You're enjoying the painting," or "You're painting with blue." Mm. So we're not actually we're we're showing the child we're there, we're watching them, we're interested in what they're doing, but we're not making any like we're not telling them where they need to paint that blue mm. or uh, telling them how to do it we're just giving them the opportunity to do it um and, and sometimes sorry on. i was Nicole. wondering why you wouldn't use um praise for instance when you're when a child shows you their painting that's an interesting one um i think it's more that we want to show them that regardless of what because there's an when we give praise is an inher- inherent idea that there is good yeah. and bad mm. And so when they're playing, we just want them to be able to express whatever it is. that. They, so if, you know, if a kid paints the entire page black, 
oh, you've painted it black. And when he says, I finished, oh, you're happy that you finished, you know, you, you're, and the kid's smiling, you're happy that you finished your painting. Mm. Um, so if we give praise, oh, you've, oh, you're doing a good job of that painting where there's an inherent idea that this might be good or bad. Mm. And perhaps favouring whatever they did that time, trying to recreate that next time to yeah, rather please than, the adult. Yeah. yeah, yeah, rather than what is it you need to be doing? Mm. That, um, and so you see some kids doing the same thing over and over again and then suddenly they stop and it's like, right, I've had enough of that now. Um, whereas, you know, we could, by saying, oh, that's a great painting, we could be inherently going, you need to do this, you need to replicate this again to get my attention. Yeah. Whereas yeah. we actually don't really need them to do that. We just are there. Um, with the... Um, so, yeah, the, that responding and kind of um, is very important, I think, in helping to facilitate, like um, helping um, mm. the young people to understand that somebody is there, they're looking out for them, but they're not telling them what to do. And often mm. when you've had a sense of control taken away from you because you have been in an experience of persecution or in flight, you don't have any control. And so part of it was about giving them control and uh, one of the particular groups we did um they weren't they the first couple of sessions made an apps i mean um artistic mess i don't know they just they went there was stuff everywhere um and you know but that was you know like we were limit setting we were right okay we don't you know i can see you're really excited about this paint but the paint stays on the table, not on the floor. So, and, you know, it's like a young, a younger child. You do that a few times and eventually they get the idea, okay, the paint goes here and I'm not being yelled at because I've moved the paint or I'm not being yelled at because I've done something, but I understand what the boundaries and the limits are around keeping everything safe where I'm yeah. playing. And so key is that the boundary was to do with the paint, not with the child. It's not that yeah. the child did something wrong. It's about where the paint goes and where it doesn't go. That's so right, yeah. That blaming language is removed. Yeah. Um, it was challenge. It, I mean, it's not without its challenges um, sometimes, particularly um, when it comes to children who don't know how to engage with other children mm. and might just use their bodies instead. And a lot of kids do use their bodies a lot in play and so kind of identifying and kind of helping to to set some limits so with one group we actually they wanted to play they were playing superheroes because they had superhero costumes and they loved them and that's what they wanted to do um but they can't hit each other mm. <laughs> You know, um, it may be in a, a situation, a family situation, you might have some rough and tumble, but this was not rough and tumble. This was hitting each other. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about how can you satisfy that need in a safe way. So we had the, um, you know, those uh, mat things they use for boxing. Yeah. So we had those. And if you needed to, you know, kapow your enemy, mm. Um, one of us would hold up the the um, that and, you know, it was interesting mm. how quickly that need dissipated when it was actually met. Yeah, and it's just um, so validating of that yeah. need that they felt and they saw it 
um, get a positive response from an adult to say, yeah, yeah that, that's, I understand, that's part of the game. Let's find a safe way to do that. And that need was met. Yeah. And so even with um, one of the groups that were quite, had been quite dysregulated, it, on their last session, they were actually playing, there were two boys playing with each other. And another boy was playing by himself, but extremely creatively. Mm. And it was just a very beautiful thing to see. Um, and interestingly, the, the one of the boys who has other needs, he he couldn't engage when they were at that higher level of play. He couldn't really engage with them because he wasn't quite there yet. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you, you do see some um, see changes within um, yeah. that their level of engagement, their ability to kind of connect with adults and with young people um, when they're in a situation where they meet need where they can meet those um, need those yeah, that inherent yeah. need for play. And um, I know they would have, knowing how you work and how the co-therapist works, they would have picked up on the positive regard, the unconditional positive yeah, regard yeah. for every child in the room. And they would have picked up that you were not going to blame them or assume the worst. And there were only three rules and that sense of freedom and that sense of safety coming together. And um, it was interesting. We had a situation where we had a little boy cry because um, one of the children had um, wrecked one of his games. Like, And it was interesting and it was right at the end of the session and so you know, sort of sitting with what had happened and, and you know, seeing the level of empathy come from other students about why that person might be feeling that way and, you mm. know, are you okay? And, you know, like just seeing that that change in whereas previously they weren't really a bit oblivious to each other and so seeing that change and and, you know, sort of supporting a, a repair of that relationship as well, um, given that there had been a rupture. So um, there's lots of this. Um, while, you know, sometimes schools go, you're just playing, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot that happens when you play. And there sure is. And, and kids know inherently what they need to do. And I think as, you know, as a therapist, um, it's something that I, I constantly remind myself that, you know, they do need. They do know what they need. Yeah. And my role is to try and help meet those needs. Um, oh, on that note, Rochelle, it's just been fascinating talking to you. And I, I just wonder, is there anything else you'd like to add? I yeah. Funny you should say that, Nicole. You knew I'd say something else. <laughs> I wanted to add. We were talking about play and play-based groups, but yeah. the other thing I wanted to add and goes back to what I was saying about the environment is with this one particular school that I've been working with um, doing play-based groups, we actually are working on increasing the play opportunities at recess and lunch. So I'm actually been invited to come into their school and help, um, help their team with ideas of um, quiet games and quiet areas wow. and... Um, things that because they're not in this particular school they're not allowed to run in most of the school so that creates an issue in that we have these dysregulated children who can't actually regulate themselves because movement's what helps them yeah. and so um, 
part of it has been looking at, well, what opportunities do we have? And, you know, some of the children don't know the games that are, might not know the games that are played in that school. So they've um, some concerted efforts to looking at how do we change the, the playground environment? Mm -hmm. How do we provide different opportunities? So um, they got a grant for a sensory room, not my idea, it was their idea. Mm -hmm. um, a, sens a sensory space. Um, we're looking at, um, you know, doing some other things in the playground around gardening, around um, kind of addressing some of the issue around why can't we run? Yeah. Um, Could you talk to that for listeners that aren't familiar with schools that don't allow students to run? So um, some schools um, have rules around running in the playground. I think it's partly because there are schools that do have um, limited space and children will run into each other. Um, some schools have um, structures within how their buildings are built that might, you know, children could run into, like poles and things that children could run into. And I think that that, um, you know, sometimes can create challenges in terms of allowing children to run or move quickly. Mm. Um, and part of that is about risk management. And I think the issue is that, um, and there's a lot of literature that talks about um, risk management and how do we enable children to actually experience risk. When we play, we take risks all the time. So when we're playing with our mates in the playground, we might be jumping off things, we might be running, we might be doing things that help children to understand what their bodies can do and it helps them to understand how much risk they can take or what might, um, you know, what am, what am I capable of? And then also the running aspect, I think, too, there's the element of physical fitness that can be problematic as well. Um, this particular school has an oval, but there are, you know, I know that some schools don't have ovals. And so that creates another layer of how do I enable movement opportunities, knowing it will help kids be a bit more settled in the classroom if I've got this sort of scenario. So we're at this, we've been exploring some of the different issues Um and there are quite a few. Um, not that I won't say that. And COVID certainly um, sort of meant that we had to slow down on what we were doing because some of the things, the ideas and things we had, like they had set bought big floor cushions, like outdoor floor cushions, so that kids and books that kids could go and read at. They had put up some um, chalkboards for drawing uh, on the vertical. Um, they have some Lego tables. Well, the Lego tables, they can't put them out for everyone at the moment because of um, the cleaning and COVID restrictions. But thinking about how do we kind of provide different opportunities and how do we mitigate our risk management compared to what what are the things that people will get from that. So one of the possibilities we're looking at is um, um, a program that looks at having loose um, parts play. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with loose parts play, but oh, what, it looks, um, what it looks like in a playground is that you have um, usually pieces of uh, things that are 
like recycled. Um, so it might be old tires, it could be milk crates, it could be pool noodles, it could be old tarps, or and you provide a load of different things that don't have a, a particular purpose. Um, it was um, highlighted in some research that was done um, at Sydney University called the Sydney Play Project. And it, um, what they found is that kids um, moved more when they had these loose play objects. And um, some of the anecdotal, more anecdotal evidence was about um, that they actually didn't require as much supervision because they were busy doing stuff. Mm. Um, they didn't need, you know, because if you go and tell on someone to the teacher, you're actually missing out on your playtime. So they created lots of different, um, they problem solved, they pushed, pulled, moved, built cubbies, did drag races in milk crates. They moved things around. So not necessarily that running, but that movement orientation yeah. uh, that some of, um, some of our students really do need. So um, that's one idea we're entertaining at this particular school. Um, but there are others that we're also looking at at the moment. Um, and hopefully now that school is back and, well, I don't know if we can call it a semblance of normality mm. given COVID, but it's something that um, we will definitely explore. Um, what can educators within New South Wales do if they've got students with refugee experience in their school and they're interested in, in broadening um, the smallest borders of play opportunities available in their school? What can they do if they're interested? I mean, I think the first thing is always looking at, well, what opportunities do you already have? One of the, another of the schools I work in, I haven't worked on play because in their early, certainly their kindy class, they do developmental play um, a couple of times a week where they just set up the room for play and that the teachers have recognised the importance of play in sort of the development of literacy and, you know, sort of those sorts of elements. Um, so looking at what elements of play are already there, mm. um, looking at what the environment opportunities there might be and thinking about, well, do I, is this something I can do myself or do I need to ask for some support? Um, one school that has a high number of refugees has actually set up a playroom, like I described earlier, um, and the play therapist has been helping train teachers to actually um, support children in the room. Um, so um, because they've also recognised that that could be one way that um, that children have the opportunity to to make up for or to um, get the the opportunity the play opportunities they need. I mean, play is a right of all children. So, um, and it's enshrined in our um, convention, the child um, the rights of the child. So, yeah. schools do. It, although the curriculum is is um, is very crowded, we do need to not see play as as something that's just an add-on but rather something yeah. that's vitally important and I was really encouraged recently to hear from um, an intensive English centre who told me that they um, they play with their they um, set up games for their and play for their um, their students in high school so it might not be dress-ups but it, it might be 
playing board games and teaching them how to play those games that they might not have had a chance to be competitive about and to take risks in terms of those sorts mm. of things. And, you know, sometimes it's about having a playful attitude as well. It's yeah. not just what you do, but how you do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some educators are fantastic at actually incorporating that playfulness into the things they do on a daily basis. And, you know, I'd encourage people to 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 really see um, play as something very, very important um, to the overall um, well-being of a child. Um, yeah. Thank you, Rochelle. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. And um, you've given us so much food for thought today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining um, us. Thank you, Nicole, for, for having me. Mm-hmm.